welcome to History Time, a kids' history and literature podcast. This is Claire Lambert. Um, today's episode is about George Washington Carver. And last week I put out an episode on Friday reading the first chapter of a biography about George Washington Carver. And a lot of the facts in this episode are going to be from that book, uh, but it's still worth a read if you get a chance. It's a pretty good book, um, and I gave the author and the title on the last podcast, and it will be in the show notes as well. So take a look at that if you want to learn some more, but I'm going to give you kind of an overview of George Washington Carver's life and some other fun facts. So speaking of fun facts, we're going to start with peanut facts. Um, Peanuts are actually one of the most water-efficient nuts to grow. So if you think of a handful of nuts, um, so not, not too many, peanuts, it takes about 18 gallons of water to grow a handful of nuts as opposed to walnuts that take 93 gallons and almonds that take 98 gallons. So compared to some of the other nuts, it doesn't use very much water to grow a handful of peanuts. Okay, moving on to peanut allergies. Only about six-tenths of a percent of the United States is actually allergic to peanuts. Uh, Peanuts are the 12th most valuable cash crop in the United States. Of all the peanuts eaten in the United States, Half of them are eaten as peanut butter. And last fun fact about peanuts, 99% of peanut farms are family-owned small businesses. So if you want to support some family-owned small businesses, go buy some peanuts from the United States. I can't speak for other countries. Okay, so now we're going to be talking about the peanut genius himself, George Washington Carver. I'm going to reiterate some stuff I said last week, talking about his early life since I uh, read that chapter already. It might be a repeat, but let's hear it again. George Washington Carver was born into slavery. Uh, He doesn't know the exact year that he was born because they didn't keep very detailed records back then, especially of slave children. His owner's name was Moses Carver, and he owned slaves, but he was actually against slavery, which made him pretty unpopular with everybody. Um, the people who didn't want slaves were upset because he owned slaves, and the people who did want slaves were upset because he lived in the South and was against slavery, even though he had slaves himself. When George Washington Carver was an infant, he was kidnapped with his mom. So some people would come and pillage the farm that he lived, which was a pretty common occurrence in the South back then and the North. It was after the, or actually this was during the Civil War, so there was a lot of you know, roving gangs and even soldiers from both the North and the South who would kind of just take whatever they wanted. Um, So some people came. It didn't say what kind of group they were, but I'm just assuming it's some um, thieves. So they came and they took George Washington Carver and his mother. Now, he actually had a brother who was there as well. Um, Moses hid him when he saw the people coming, but he didn't have time to hide George Washington and his mom. Um, So they got kidnapped. That was not uncommon, but Moses Carver did um, hire somebody to go find them. He was not successful at finding his mother, but George Washington Carver got brought back. um, But he wasn't in great shape, so he was a pretty sickly child from then on. Um, He had been abandoned by the robbers and just left with some random lady. So he didn't die, but he wasn't in great shape. Um, So from then on, he was... Pretty sickly. He did not grow to his full potential, um, and his vocal por- vocal cords were damaged, so his voice was actually unusually high. 
Um, instead of working out in the fields like his brother did, he helped Susan Carver, who was Moses's wife, in the house. And he learned things like knitting, making and cleaning clothes, cooking and gardening. And he had a really keen memory for um, things like recipes and instructions. So if they told him the recipe one time, he would pretty much remember it without needing to go over it again. Um, he spent a lot of time outside in the fields and gardens, both helping Susan and just because he had some more spare time than his brother did. Um, so he was really interested when he was out outside. He was really interested in the dirt, the rocks, and the flowers. Um, there's a quote in the book that says, this is something that he said when he was older, people murder a child when they say, keep out of the dirt. He had pet rocks and he transplanted wildflowers into a garden and in the winter, he came up with an idea based on some of the things he learned from Susan Carver, um, how she kept the vegetables and roots saved during the winter was she would make a root cellar. Um, so George Washington Carver made a cellar for his plants. And during the winter, he would go down there and look at all his beautiful plants and bring them up to get some sunshine in the winter. Um, and that worked pretty well for him. But throughout his entire childhood, George Washington Carver always wanted to get an education. Um, he says that his soul thirsted for an education, but as the child of a slave, even after slaves were freed, he wasn't able to get that kind of edu education in the South. Uh, okay, so for school and church when he was growing up, he did not know how to read until Susan gave him a book. Um, she gave him one of those little speller books that they used to have, and he memorized the whole book, taught himself how to read and spell and stuff like that, but not really the most thorough education he could have gotten. Uh, he learned to pray when he was 10, and from then on, he was very religious. In fact, he said that he had visions from God. Um, the first one being when he was a child at the Carver's farm. He said that he had a dream about a knife in a watermelon patch. And when he woke up, he ran out to the watermelon patch, and there stuck in a watermelon was the knife. When he was a child, he earned the nickname Plant Doctor. Um, and he would go around to different farms and help the both the slaves and the landowners with plants that they were having trouble with. Um, and that's actually the first time that he saw real art, was when he went to go take care of the plants in a... Uh, rich lady's house and he went in there was beautiful paintings of flowers and from then on he not only wanted to be get an education but he wanted to become a painter uh, he attended the local school for a very short time but he was quickly kicked out uh, when they found out that he was a former slave which was not very hard to find out considering almost all the African Americans in the south at that time had been slaves um so after he gets kicked out from the school, he starts looking for another school to go to, um, and he finds the Lincoln School for Colored Children, but this school is about eight miles away, and back when George Washington Carver was a child, there wasn't a great way of traveling, so if he were to go to that school, it would take him almost all day to walk there. You know, eight miles is a really far away. Um, but he told the Carvers, you know, I really need to go here. I know I'm only 11, but I need to go get an education. So I'm going to move over and I'm going to go to the Lincoln School for Colored Children. Um, he didn't have a job. He didn't have a house. He didn't really have any plan of what he was going to do when he got there. He just knew that he had to go there to get this education. So he goes to school 
and he gets there um, in the evening one night, and he doesn't have anywhere to sleep, obviously. So he spends the night in a barn, and then the next morning he wakes up, and he goes to wait at the school. So uh, he's sitting there at the school, and then this lady walks by, and she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> he says, I'm waiting to go to school. Uh, but it turns out that it was Saturday morning. So had he waited there, he would have been there for the entire weekend because they did not go to school, obviously, on Saturday and Sunday. Um, this woman that walked past him's name was Mariah Watkins, and she invited him back to get some food at her house and talk to him about, you know, what's he doing, this little 11-year-old child sitting on the steps of a school on a Saturday morning. Um, and when he invites them back, they get to talking, and they decide, you know what, why don't you come stay with us? Uh, if you move in, you can stay here and go to school um, as long as you help us with the work around the house. And um, she had a laundry business that she did, so help me with the laundry. Uh, and then when he gets here, Mariah is actually the one who decided that he needed to call himself George Carver. So from the time that he was born to when he moved to go to the school... He was calling himself Carver's George, which was his, you know, slave name. Um, since his owner's name was Carver, his last name, he called himself Carter's George because he belonged to the Carvers. So that's where his last name came from, George Carver. Um, and he lived with them for about nine months. But after about nine months, he pretty much learned all he could from the school. It was just a very basic education that he got there. So he goes to Kansas looking for a better school. Um, and the same kind of thing that he did the first time. He just, you know, walked over to Kansas or however he got there. Um, no job, no place to live, not really a plan. But luckily, he gets hired as a cook. And this school, he has to buy his books for, which takes him a while to save up. Uh, but he finally attends his first semester with his books. And at the end of that semester... Um, you know, that he's going to the school and the kids start to know him. And they really don't like him. This is... He's in Kansas in the South right after the Civil War ended, so there's obviously a lot of prejudice going on towards anyone trying to get an education who's not a white, educated, or a white, wealthy male. Um, so he saves the money for books, um, but while he's going there, near the end of the semester, the kids actually, two white kids, follow him home from school, and they beat him up and steal his books. So Carver starts saving up again. He's like, I can't go to school this semester, but maybe next year um, I'll have enough money to get some more books and go back. But soon after his books got stolen, there was actually a lynching near his house. So Carver hears this lynching and he thinks, you know what, I know they're not coming for me, but sometimes these people get kind of excited and they'll just go around town, you know, killing whoever they want. So he was very scared. Um, and instead of staying to go to school the next semester, he fled town. And he moved all the way across Kansas. From then on, he, he didn't find a school for a long time. So he went around for about 11 years. He was moving, doing odd jobs, looking for a place that he could go to school. Um, he moved in with Lucy Seymour um, to help with her laundry business. And she was a really religious person. Um, and he lived with them for a while. And then when they go to move, they were moving to Minneapolis in Kansas. So they say, hey, George, why don't you come with us to Minneapolis? And then you can go to this other school you want, and we're going anyways, so that way you can have an easy ride. So he gets up to Minneapolis with the Seymours, and he starts his own business uh, called George Carver's Laundry. <coughs> Excuse me. And he starts school again. 
Um, and while he's in Minneapolis, he applies for a nearby college, uh, it's a Presbyterian college in Kansas, and he was accepted. So he gets all excited. He buys this typewriter, um, which was not cheap at the time, and he, you know, he didn't make that much money, and he was already going to school. So it was a pretty big investment for him. And he learns how to type, and he learns how to do shorthand, all in preparation for going to this college that he's been accepted to. So he heads up to the college and he makes an appointment with the dean just to get everything settled when he gets up there. Um, and as soon as he gets into the main office or whatever, um, they see him and they're like, oh, <laughs> we didn't realize that you were black um, and African-Americans are not allowed to go to the school. So even though you have been accepted, you're not allowed to come here anymore. And actually the headmaster or dean of the school wouldn't even see him. Um, to talk about it. So he was very upset about this. He pretty much gave up his dream of going to school at this time. He kept telling his family and friends back home in um, Kansas that he was going to school and he was having a great time at the Presbyterian College. But in reality, he had moved out west. He applied for a homestead and he had got one. So he got 160 acres and to be a homesteader, you had to live on the land and make improvements to it for a period of, I believe, five years. Um, so he lived there. He built a sod house on his property. He built a greenhouse. Um, and he actually became really important in his town. So he was one of the most well-educated men in his town, even though he was a prior slave and an African-American who didn't typically have a high education at this time. Um, and he got very disappointed because <laughs> he was doing all these great things for his community, but um, they wrote a news article about him, and here's what they said. Were it not for his dusty skin, no fault of his own, he might occupy a different sphere to which his ability would otherwise entitle him. So basically they're saying, you know, he's, his ability is really high. He should be, you know, one of the most popular people in this town. He should have all these powers, but because of his skin, he's in this lower sphere of society and won't be able to move up. So after a couple years in on his homestead, he decides, all right, I'm going to, I need to get out of here. So he moves to Iowa. And in Iowa, he does a similar thing. He's, you know, cooking, starting a business for laundry. He's going to his church and being an active member in the community. Um, and while he's at the church singing, a lady named Helen Milholland heard him singing. Um, and she called him over to her house. So she's got this big fancy mansion and she's like, uh, phoning up George Washington Carver, telling him, you I need you to come over to my house. So when he shows up, she says, George Washington Carver, you have the most beautiful voice I have ever heard. Please teach me how to sing. And he says, mm, okay. Uh, he's looking around the house and he sees all these paintings she's been doing. He says, okay, here's the deal. I'll teach you how to sing and you need to teach me how to be an artist. So they agree and they start... Um, he starts giving her music lessons, she starts giving him art lessons, and they continue on like that for a while. Um, if you remember, George Washington Carver, ever since he was a boy, wanted to be an artist. So even though his dream of going to school was not working out, this was a pretty good deal for him. Um, while he's there with Helen Milholland, she tells him, you should apply to Simpson College. And he's obviously a little skeptical. Um, you know, last time he applied, it did not go well. He did get in, but you know, because he was an African-American, they didn't want him at that school. But she says, no, no, it's not like that here. Um, just give it a shot, you know, see what happens. So this time he, he does apply, but this time he says, 
in his application. I am an African-American, so if that's a problem, just don't even bother sending me an acceptance letter. Um, but he does get in, and he moves down to Simpson College. He does not have very much at this time, so most of the people going to this school were young, white, wealthy men. Um, and here comes this, you know, slightly older, well, he's not old, but he's older than most of the people going to that school, um, African-American who does not have any money. In fact, when he moved there, he says that he only had about 15 cents worth of food left. So whatever 15 cents would buy you in cornmeal and fat is what he had. And for an entire week, <laughs> he ate this 15 cents of cornmeal and fat until his laundry business started off. So when he got there, he had paid to open this laundry, um, which is where all his money went. But here's what he said. There was a funny quote. I lived on these two things. He's talking about the cornmeal and fat for one whole week. It took that long for people to learn that I wanted clothes to wash. <laughs> so he says they didn't, they didn't realize, but once they learned, they did bring them to me. So he's got his business up and running, ready to go to Simpson College. Uh, he lived in an abandoned shack, so he didn't have his own place that he was renting. He just found an abandoned house, and that's where he put his laundry up. So he got a loan for the laundry equipment and got started. Uh, his schoolmates were the ones who would send him clothes, actually. So they would come over, drop off their clothes, have a little chat. Um, and when they saw his shack, they <laughs> were obviously appalled. You know, most of them had come from very wealthy homes, um, and seeing this fellow student living in an abandoned shack with no furniture and only laundry equipment made them, you know, kind of upset for him. So they started a fund and bought him some furniture, which was wonderful for him, considering all the prejudice and hatred he's had up until now in the education system. These students are really accepting him and making him part of the community. So at Simpson College, he was really popular and successful. Um... He met lots of people that, you know, looked after him, took care of him, including his art teacher and some local bookstore owners who would, you know, give him a deal or give him some advice when he needed it. While he was at school, he was, he was studying art, um, but he continued with his plant experiments. So one day he went to art and he brought his teacher a blue geranium. And she said, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. Where did you get this? And he says, um, you know, I've been... I collect plants, and I've been um, messing around with growing them, and here's a, I made this blue geranium. Um, so she takes some of the samples, and she sends them to her father, who happens to be a botany professor at the Iowa State University. And after he sees these samples, he tells her, you know, let him know. I'm, I'm interested in him coming to Iowa State and studying botany. So she tells him, but George Washington Carver is pretty conflicted on this, um, He's always loved plants, but it's really been his dream, especially recently since he got kicked out of school, to be an artist. Um, and that's what he was currently doing. But eventually she convinces him and he heads off to Iowa State. Um, when he gets there, he is not as well received as he was at Simpson College. So he faces a lot of prejudice, um, even when he first arrives. So they, they're looking for a place for him to stay. They have the student dorms. But basically everyone says, we don't want him in here, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stay in a room with this African-American man. Um, but one of his professors hears of this and he says, oh, no, that's not acceptable. Um, I'm gonna move my office upstairs here. You can have this room that was my old office to live in. So he's living in his old professor's office, which was very kind of him. 
Um, at first, he was not even allowed to eat in the dining hall. So he goes to the dining hall and he gets told, oh, I'm sorry, you can't eat in the um, main room with your other students. You have to go down and eat with the help. Now, if you remember, I was just saying that some people at Simpson College took it upon themselves to take care of him and look after him. And one of these people was Mrs. Liston. So word gets back to Mrs. Liston that he is not being treated well. He's being forced to eat in the basement with the help. So she says, nope, we're not doing that. She hops on a train and heads off to Iowa State University. And when she gets there, she goes to the dining hall with them. And she says, okay, let's go eat some dinner. And, you know, I can only assume that he was a little nervous about this, considering he's got this very proper wealthy white woman with him. Um, and they've been turning him down to go eat with the help. So they go upstairs and... He gets his food, and then they start heading downstairs, and the guy in the cafeteria says, what are you doing? She can't go downstairs with the help, and Mrs. Liston is very adamant. If you're going to treat George Washington Carver like this, then that's how it's going to be. You know, I'm going to go down here and eat with the help, and it was a huge embarrassment. So from then on, uh, he was actually allowed to eat in the dining hall. So he's not having as good a time as he did at Stimson College at Iowa State University. Um, but he continues to go to school. He's working odd jobs throughout the year. Sometimes he has so little money that he actually has to forage for food. Um, and he misses class because he has to go look in the woods for some food to eat. Um, and when he took notes, he would actually write them on old pieces of wrapping paper for his classes. So he didn't even have a notebook that he was using like the other students did. Um, he was required to join the National Guard when he went to Iowa State University. Um, and the first time that he went to the guard or, you know, the training or whatever, the officer told him, you know, you've got a really bad slouch. And that's been from, he's been doing laundry his whole life, leaning over a laundry basket. So yeah, he does have a slouch. Um, but he heard that and he was dedicated to succeeding. He says, this is, here's one of his quotes, um, that he thought he should do all things uncommonly well. So he took that into this and he says, okay, I've got to fix this slouch. Every day he would get a stick and he'd put it behind his back and put his arms over back of it. So it's kind of propped in between his armpits and his back, um, pushing his chest out forward. So he'd have a stick in his back and he would walk two miles with that stick under his arms and his hands clasped behind his back trying to fix his posture. Um, and it worked in two years. His dedication and hard work paid off. He actually became... Um, captain in the National Guard, which was the highest rank you could get while you were a student. So he was very successful. Um, his The officer above him actually raved about it, commented on how dedicated he was, how hardworking he was. So he was very successful in that. Uh, some of his professors are really impressed with his art. So they tell him, you should uh, take your art and enter it in this competition. There's one coming up for the state, and we think you do really well in it. Uh, and George Washington says... Well, I really don't have any money for that. Um, I would love to enter the contest, but it just isn't an option right now. But his friends and his professors were not taking no for an answer. Um, his friends picked him up one day. They had some ruse to get him in the car. Um, they took him, instead of wherever he was expecting to go, to an expensive clothing store. And they pushed him in the building and put a suit on him and walked him out of the building. And he was, you know, protesting the whole time. He did not, like buying new things, he didn't like spending a lot of money on stuff, and there was no way he was, could afford this suit by himself. But his friends insisted, 
Uh, and then they drove him next to his professor's house. And he gets to the professor's house and they say, everything is taken care of. I've already sent your paintings down. Here's a ticket. Go to the competition. So they put him on a bus and send him off to the competition. And one of his paintings at this competition called Yucca Gloriosa, which he painted while he was out west being a homesteader, uh, won. And it was actually put in the Chicago World Fair of 1893. So things are kind of turning up for George Washington Carver. And in 1894, he is 30 years old and he finishes his Bachelor's of Architecture, <laughs> Agriculture, not Architecture, uh, with a specialty in grafting. And at that time, he was hired by Iowa State to take over the greenhouse and pursue a master's degree. So he starts doing that. And in 1896, he gets his master's in agriculture. And throughout that time, he had donated over 1,500 plants to the university's collection. So he did a lot of good for Iowa State while he was there. Now, after he finishes his master's degree, he hears from a man named Booker T. Washington, Booker T. Washington is a pretty important person. Uh, he opened the Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute, which was a school only for African Americans. And he contacted George Washington Carver, asking him if he would open an agricultural section of the school. Um, he basically had to start from scratch. You know, they did not have any kind of agricultural section. Uh, but George Washington Carver thought, you know, one of my dreams in life has always been to help advance people of my race. So this seems like a really good opportunity to do that. He took the job and as he's leaving, his colleagues from Iowa State sent him with a microscope as a goodbye gift, which turned out very great because when he shows up in Tuskegee, Alabama, it is not how he expected. Um, the whole area used to be made of rich black dirt, but now it's just covered in dust and un unusable soil because the over-farming of cotton. Um, it's a former slave state, so the schools are segregated, the restaurants are segregated, the Jim Crow laws are still in effect. It's really a not, not a great place to be if you're an African-American at the time. Um, but he goes there and he's hanging out and he says, um, you know, he has a couple demands. So he's actually the most educated professor there, and he is the highest paid professor, which does not bring him much favor with the other staff. Um, he actually has a lot darker skin than most of the other staff, too, which made them not like him as much. Um, just like, you know, the whites had prejudice against the blacks, the lighter-skinned African-Americans sometimes had prejudice against the darker-skinned ones. Um, and in addition, this really got them going, he asked for extra room for his collections. So he's got all these plants and rocks that he wants another room for. Um, while the other professors are sharing a room, he wants two rooms just to himself. So they are not, they're not very happy with him. Um, and then he gets to his lab and he's expecting, you know, science equipment, uh, plants, a greenhouse, what have you. But basically, it's just an empty room. Um, he didn't have any supplies. He had the one microscope that his Iowa State friends had sent with him. But besides that, he had pretty much nothing. Um, so he would repurpose basically junk. Um, he would take old bottles and use them as you know test tubes or to boil things. He would take hubcaps and make Bunsen burners out of them. I don't know if that's true. I just made a couple examples up. But stuff like that. So you take old things and repurpose them. Um, and he taught his students to do this too. So he was, you know, passing on the, you don't need to have 
this fancy life or all this money to be successful, which was, you know, something that he really fought for in his own life. Um, he wanted to help the poor. So while he's at Tuskegee Institute, he notices that there is many people starving. Um, the people in the South, they weren't able to grow the crops that they needed to survive because of the poor soil. So he started looking around. He was looking for native food, something that they could go out and find, and they didn't need good soil to grow because it was already growing there. So some of the things he found were plums, acorns, and sweet potatoes. And he would make up these pamphlets on how they could collect them and cook them and use them in their own way. So that was really helpful for people who were starving. Um, he also taught practical skills for farmers. So he would get a group together and he would teach the farmers how to farm better. He would teach the wives how to cook the food they were farming better. Um, and he started traveling to reach more people in the area. So he was really helping out a lot of the people in Alabama who were suffering from the overfarming of cotton. Um, and after a while, this is going so well that he starts a traveling school for the Tuskegee Institute. So he gets his stuff together and he travels all over teaching people how to, you know, do farming better, basically. Um, one of the main problems in Alabama was the farming of cotton, which I've already mentioned before. Cotton was a really important cash crop, uh, which is why it was grown. So they would grow it and then they would sell it for a pretty high profit. But cotton takes a lot of nutrients from the soil, and they had a really bad infestation going on in Alabama of boll weevils, which is a insect that attacks the cotton plant. I'm not really sure what part, but basically what he figured out is that here's what you're going to do. We're going to plant peanuts. It's going to revive the soil, put the nutrients back, and the boll weevils cannot eat the peanuts because they grow under the ground. Or maybe that's not why, but they don't eat the peanuts, right? So um, it's a different enough plant that it's not going to be harmed by the infestation you currently have. So it's a pretty good solution. You know, it, both the problems they're having are fixed by peanuts. So while he's in Alabama, he, and you know, after that, but he starts while he's in Alabama, he makes over 300 peanut inventions. And I'm going to name just a couple because there are so many, three many is too many. Um, the most important being, and he didn't necessarily invent these for the first time, but he improved them. So some of the most notable, notable ones are peanut butter, um, peanut milk, which that one was really important because at that time they didn't have anything to replace cow's milk. So anyone who was lactose intolerant didn't really have an option. And so the, the moms who had lactose intolerant kids were very happy about that one. Um, he made a bunch of peanut recipes, such as peanut candy, peanut brittle, and peanut fudge. Um, and I, okay, so here, let me look it up. I have a full list <laughs> of things that I will read to you from the Tuskegee Institute page. Here is some of the things that he made from peanuts. He made pancake flour, peanut flour, malted peanuts. <laughs> he made mock oysters out of peanuts chop suey sauce out of peanuts, <laughs> all these mock meats. So he has mock goose, mock duck, mock chicken, mock veal, 32 different kinds of milks, um, cooking oil. He made caramel and cream cheese. Oh no, cheese cream, maybe also cream cheese. I don't know. Out of peanuts. He made peanut sausage. <laughs> he made, um, molasses feed. He made laundry soap. 
He made peanut orange punch, which just sounds terrible. Um, pineapple punch, which I guess had peanuts in it. Lots of punches. Um, iron tonic. So these are all medicines. Uh, laxatives and uh, rubbing oil. He made lotion for your hands, your face, your other stuff. Anything else? Basically anything you want for babies. He made shampoo. He made just so many things. Okay, let me find one more cool thing. He made axle grease out of peanuts. So I don't even know what he was doing with all these peanuts, but he had so many things. Now, peanuts were not his only thing. He had lots of other inventions. Um, in fact, Mo Mahatma Gandhi, his office called um, George Washington Carver and said, you know, Gandhi's not doing well. We need to put him on a special plant diet and we'd like you to develop it. So he developed a, a plant-based diet for Gandhi. Um, he also made multiple ways to use sweet potatoes, um, making things like dyes and paints, and um, he worked with things like alfalfa and soybeans, too, which were popular crops in the South at the time. Um, then later, after he's made these inventions, the Peanut Growers Association asks him to go to Congress, and they're like, you know, people not in the United States are growing these peanuts real cheap. Uh, we can't keep up with it, you know. They're selling peanuts and they're outselling us. Nobody wants to buy the more expensive peanuts when they can just get them from wherever else. So they say, George Washington Carver, you have to help us. Please go to Congress and tell them they need to set a tariff on peanuts. So he does. He goes to Congress. They're not very excited about it. They don't really want him there. They don't want to hear from, you know, anyone really. But they definitely don't want to hear from an African American who, you know, at the time Congress was... Well, it was in the 1920s, so it was probably exclusively white males. Um, so he was not very welcome, and they told him when he got there, they said, you have 10 minutes, and then you're gone, so get to it. So he gets up there. He is not flustered at all by their time limit. He sets up this wonderful display of inventions that he's made from peanuts, and then he says, think about this. If all the other food in the whole world was gone, we could survive on just peanuts and sweet potatoes. And he goes on to explain how he can just survive off peanuts and sweet potatoes. And they are just flabbergasted by this information. And, you know, they're like, just go on as long as you want. We want to hear more about these inventions and how these things are going to, you know, change everything. So they loved it. They put a tariff on peanuts. American peanut industry is saved. So congratulations, George Washington Carver. Okay. Um... Like I said, he faced racism throughout his life. Um, he was pretty much world famous when he got older, though. He had FDR visit him at one point, and he was really good friends with a lot of people in the government, which turned out really well for him and the other farmers in the South. Um, when he was still alive, he gave all of his money, which was uh, about $60,000, a lot in the 1920s, um, to set up the George Washington Carver Foundation at Tuskegee. So he sets up his um, foundation. It's like, kind of like a museum, but they do other things as well. Um, today, a lot of his ideas are still relevant. So things like organic farming, reforestation, and recycling are all ideas that George Washington Carver was putting out there to uh, take care of what you have so that it'll keep giving to you, like um, through crop rotation with the cotton and the peanuts. Um, and that's pretty much all I have for George Washington Carver. So, awesome guy. In fact, he is the genius behind the peanut. 
And now I'm going to tell you some quotes that he said, some of them funny. I'll start with the not funny ones. One thing he said about education. Education is the key to unlock the golden door of freedom, which he really believed. You could tell throughout his life he was very invested in getting an education for the former slaves who were in the South. Uh, Another quote, when you do the common things in life in an uncommon way, you will command the attention of the world. Another one, there is no shortcut to achievement. 99% of the failures come from people who have a habit of making excuses. How far you go in life depends on you being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the starving, and tolerant of the weak and strong. Because someday in your life, you will have been all of these things. And my last quote is a funny one. So he says, When I was young, I said to God, God, tell me the mystery of the universe. But God answered, That knowledge is for me alone. So I said, God, tell me the mystery of the peanut. Then God said, Well, George, that's more nearly your size. And he told me. That's it for the episode on George Washington Carver. Um, I'll be releasing another episode on Friday with a first chapter reading of Esperanza Rising, which is a book I just recently read, and it's wonderful. Um, So I hope you enjoy that. And then next week on Wednesday, I'll be releasing another episode. Um, Not sure what that's going to be on, so if you have a suggestion, feel free to send it to me. Um, The email for the podcast is historystorytime at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you if you have anything to suggest or comments about the episode or corrections if I got something wrong, because I probably did. Um, And yeah, hopefully you'll join me on Friday for the first chapter of Esperanza Rising, and I'll see you then.